Well, this morning we begin our Advent series in the Gospel of Luke. We will be looking this morning at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and we will begin by reading verses 1 through 4. These are the words of God. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Our God and Father, we pray, open these wonderful words to us, which you fulfilled some 2,000 years ago, making the world forever new through the work of your Son, the giving of your Spirit, the coming of your kingdom, its growth in the earth, your church, your bride, of which we are part. So, Lord, build us up, make us glad and glorious, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Luke, like the book of Acts, was written, humanly speaking, by the one whom Paul called Luke, the beloved physician. He was Paul's missionary partner and secretary. You see, the common practice in that day would have been for Paul to dictate his letters, and then Luke would transcribe them for Paul to review, sign, and perhaps add a personal handwritten sentence or two at the very end. You can see an example of this in Paul's letter to the Colossians, where he concludes by noting that he is writing the ending salutation with his own hand. He also notes that Luke is with him and sends greeting to the Colossians, thus confirming that the great bulk of the letter was dictated by Paul to his secretary, Luke. Now, Luke would have written his gospel with Paul's apostolic approval and authority. And this is especially true since his gospel was intended for all Christians, certainly, but especially for the Gentiles converted on their missionary journeys. And although Luke had the benefit of Paul's direct revelation from Jesus himself, You can see Paul talking about that in Galatians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And indeed, this was something required for all apostles. Apostles had to be called by Jesus personally. They had to have seen, eyewitness, the resurrected Christ. And they had to have received the gospel from Jesus personally. Paul satisfied all of those, even though he was not with Jesus during his earthly ministry. But Jesus called Paul from heaven. He revealed himself to Paul from heaven, and he caught Paul up into heaven. That's something that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So Luke had the benefit of all of that infallible revelation that Jesus gave directly to Paul. But add to that the fact that Luke was, in his own right, an excellent historian. For he conducted interviews of surviving eyewitnesses to the actual events. You see him referring to that in verse 2. 
And Luke certifies in verse 3 that he has accurately followed. That's what the little phrase there, perfect understanding. That, that phrase, perfect understanding in the Greek literally means accurately followed. In other words, he has accurately and carefully followed the eyewitness testimony in his recitation of the gospel events. Now, that kind of research that Luke did for this required travel, and travel required money. And it appears the cost for the entire project was covered by a wealthy Christian patron named Theophilus. And therefore, Luke dedicates the work to him, as was the custom of the day. You see that in verse 3. It also appears that Theophilus was among the Gentile nobility of the Roman Empire. For Theophilus is a Greek name, and Luke calls him most excellent. That was a title of nobility in that day. In addition uh, to funding the project, it appears that Theophilus was also very much representative of the target audience because his name in Greek means lover of God, and it appears that he was one of the Gentile converts of Paul's and Luke's missionary efforts. So Luke opens the Advent story proper for us in verses 5 through 7. There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, And her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. The times into which Jesus was born were not happy times, and so As modern Americans, we need to put out of our minds hallmark Christmas scenes, yuletide carols, sleigh bells ringing, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Instead, we need to conjure up feelings of unease, tension, of foreboding, of economic hardship, of social unrest, of cultural and societal fragmentation, hostility, and of impotence and fear within the covenant community. That's what Luke is signaling to us in several different ways in these few verses. The first way he signals this to us is through the barrenness of Elizabeth in verse 7. That was one of the greatest sadnesses that could ever befall a Jewish couple particularly a priest and his wife. And this is part of a long Old Testament theme whereby God caused a number of very prominent believing women in the history of redemption to be barren until he miraculously opened their wombs to conceive. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Genesis chapter 11. Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, Genesis 25. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, Genesis 29. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, 1 Samuel 1. Manoah's wife, the mother of Samson, 
Judges chapter 13. And now Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And consider that Mary, the mother of Jesus, because she was a virgin who had not come together with a man in marriage, it was impossible for her to conceive and bear a child as well. God's point in all of this barrenness of these very significant women in the history of redemption, his point is that fallen man cannot beget the promised seed and Savior. And Israel, being a priestly nation, and remember the Hebrew word priest simply means a servant, a household servant, Israel being a servant nation, and one of the ways in which she was a servant nation to all mankind is that she was a representative nation of mankind. She was a microcosm of fallen humanity, and Israel was therefore barren. That's why God calls her in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, O barren one, is what he calls Israel. Even though Israel had been called by God and taken by him as his spiritual bride, she had no life within her. That's what's being pictured by her barrenness. She has no life within her considered as a whole. Ezekiel 37 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Verse 11, And God said, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, meaning that this is the whole human race because Israel represents the human race. Now, there was always a remnant of believers within Israel, those who were regenerate by the Holy Spirit because all of God's works are known unto him from all eternity, and God doesn't try to do anything. He simply does. And so his salvation was sure even then. And so reaching out of the future, as it were, by the Holy Spirit, you had regenerate believers in the Old Testament. That's why we are pointed to them constantly as our examples. All of the examples we have in the New Testament, in the Hall of Fame of Faith, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11, they're all Old Testament people because they had the same faith. It's just that they were looking forward to the promised Christ and to his work. We're looking back on his completed work. So there were always a a remnant of believers within Israel who walked with God faithfully. In other words, in faith, trusting in the promised Redeemer to whom the promises and the sacrifices all pointed. But here's the difference. Israel as a whole did not. With very few and short-lived exceptions, Israel as a whole always trended toward unfaithfulness, idolatry, and the consequences of those sins, exile and captivity. The second way Luke signals this to us is by the reign of Herod. Herod the Great, so-called, who was the king of the Jews at that time. Now, Herod was basically a living parody of what the promised Jewish Messiah and king was supposed to be. 
First of all, he was not a son of David of the tribe of Judah. So he was not qualified to be king of Israel. He wasn't even a Jew. He was a descendant or a descendant of Jacob. He was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. Second, he was one of the most narcissistic, ruthless rulers in history. Even by the account of secular historians of the day, the only person Herod ever loved other than himself was his second wife, Miriam. And he had her killed, along with two of their sons, and along with a third son from another wife, all out of paranoia that they were plotting for his throne. And of course, he ordered the killing of the infant boys of Bethlehem based on the reports of the Magi that one had been born king of the Jews. You see how he would have perceived this as a threat because he was not a born king. He was not even uh, of the lineage of Jacob. He was not of the tribe of Judah. But now here is one who has been born king. That would be a direct threat. And the testimony of the scholars of Israel who said that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And because Herod could not figure out what specific son it was, he had all the infant sons slaughtered. And Revelation 12 tells us straight out that Satan, the serpent of old, was the real power behind the slaughter of the infant boys. But what that confirms is that Herod was Satan's tool and front man. The fact that Herod was the king of the Jews at this time was just another mark of how low Israel had sunk. And besides all that, it had been 400 years since God had last spoken through the prophets to Israel. 400 years of silence during which many Jews had scattered throughout the Roman Empire and had effectively become secularized They gave no serious thought to seeking God or serving him because God and his promises, frankly, didn't seem relevant to them in life in the Roman Empire. But now, after 400 years of silence, God is on the move again. And he's going to send an angel to Zacharias, who along with his wife Elizabeth were among the faithful believing remnant. As verse 6 tells us, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now that does not mean that they were sinless, nor does it mean that they were trying to earn their salvation by perfectly keeping the law. You have to remember when the law was given in relation to the Exodus, the Exodus being the picture, the largest Old Testament picture of redemption. And you have to remember what role the law played. Just before the Exodus came not the law, but Passover, with the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and placing its blood on the doorway of the home which would then cause the angel of death to pass over that home. Exodus chapter 12. That was a very vivid picture of the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. 
1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Those who believed God's word through Moses, what did they do? They put the blood on the doorway. And they were spared from death. And they followed Moses out of Egypt. And some of those believers were Egyptians. If you read Exodus carefully, it talks about a mixed multitude. In other words, a multitude of Egyptians that was following Moses out. A multitude of Egyptians who watched all of these events with the plagues and, and with Passover and everything else and concluded, we have been watching, uh, worshiping false gods. We have inherited emptiness from our fathers. The God of Moses, that's the real God. That's the true God. We believe what Moses said. We're going with Moses. They came out with Moses and essentially they were treated as Israelites. Well, what about Israelites who did not believe God's word through Moses? Well, they did not put the blood on the doorway. They were not spared from the death of the firstborn. And they did not follow Moses out of Egypt. So Israelites who did not believe were effectively treated like Egyptians. So it is the Passover, not the law, but the Passover that enabled Israel to come out of Egypt. The law was not given until three months later at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. So it was impossible for the law to contribute in any way to the forgiveness of Israel's sins in Egypt or her deliverance from Egypt. The law came after Israel's deliverance. The law was given to teach Israel how to do several important things. First of all, how to walk with God in the faith through which Israel was already saved. Looking forward in faith to the promised Messiah, who was constantly pictured through the various daily and yearly sin offerings. Secondly, the law was given to teach Israel how to love the God who had first loved her, how to love the God who had saved them. Third, the law was given to teach Israel how to love one another. This is why Jesus teaches us that all of the law, every bit of it, And all of the prophets, all of them, hung on the two commands to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. So when Luke says in verse 6 that Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, he's not saying that they were sinless or earning their salvation By perfectly keeping the law. It was saying that they believed in the Messiah to whom the promises and sacrifices pointed. And that they walked faithfully with God. Not perfectly, but nevertheless in genuine faith. And they confessed their sins looking to the promises. Which is the exact same thing we're called to do today. It's just that we live on the other side of Christ's completed work. Now you can see all of this Old Testament faith reflected in Zacharias and Elizabeth's very names. 
Elizabeth means my God is an oath. In other words, my God is an oath-taking God. He is a promise-making God. Zacharias means the Lord remembers. In other words, the Lord remembers his promises. The Lord keeps his promises. God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And that is what salvation is based on. And what, in a nutshell, has God promised? Well, the redemption of Israel and the world. Galatians 3, 8 and 9. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. 400 years before the law. What is this about? The gospel. He preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Zacharias and Elizabeth were Old Testament believers. They shared Abraham's faith, not just his bloodline. Because something John the Baptist, their son, is going to make very clear to Israel is that it does not matter if you have Abraham's blood in your veins if you do not have his faith in your heart. And just as God called Abraham after he was justified by faith, Genesis 15, to walk before him and be blameless, Genesis 17 That's exactly what Zacharias and Elizabeth were doing. It's the same thing that we're called upon to do today in the New Testament. We are called upon to be blameless because God does not save us so that we can go stand in the corner. He saves us so that we can come with him. We walk with him as his sons and daughters. We walk in faith. We walk in love. We respond to his love with love. We love one another. That is all very active. That's what it means to walk with the Lord blameless. So if we, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. We are not walking blameless. We're not walking in the light. If we confess our sins, now we are walking blameless. Now we are walking in the light. The same was true for the Old Testament believers. As we continue in Luke, God sends an angel to announce a birth to Zacharias, the old childless priest. Verses 8 through 10. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, serving in the temple was the greatest honor that could come to a priest. Priests' normal duties, you see, were as local pastors of the synagogue scattered throughout Judea and the principal cities of the Roman Empire. So there were thousands of priests scattered around being local pastors. So the way they determined who would get to go to Jerusalem and serve a term in the temple was by casting lots. And a priest, if his number came up, would only serve once. So serving in the temple was a a once-in-a-lifetime honor for a priest. Zacharias had waited his whole life. He is elderly now. And suddenly, 
the lot falls upon him to serve in the temple and to burn incense and offer prayer. Of course, that's what the incense stood for, the prayers of God's people. That's why you have a crowd of God's people gathered outside praying while Zacharias is offering incense and prayer inside. So while Zacharias is doing so, an angel appears to him. Verses 11 through 13. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. The angel tells Zacharias not to fear. Fear not. That is something we will hear the angel say also to Mary. Fear not, Mary. Do not fear. And indeed, we will hear Jesus say that often to the disciples. Do not be afraid. In fact, it is the most oft-repeated command in the New Testament. Do not fear. It is something we need to hear often because fear is something that easily overtakes us. The angel continues in verse 13. Your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. The angel says that Zacharias' prayer, singular, has been heard. So which prayer is he talking about? Because Zacharias would have been offering up a number of prayers, as would the people who were standing outside. But here's the theme. All of these prayers offered by Zacharias and the people would have clustered around a single theme, that God would deliver his people through the promised Messiah. Well, it turns out in the providence of God that granting that prayer concerning the coming Messiah dovetailed perfectly with granting Zacharias and Elizabeth's prayer for a son, because their son will be the forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah. God specifies through the angel that Zacharias is to name this son John. Now, it may seem like to us on first blush that that God through the angel is removing one of the privileges of parenthood, which is naming your own child, but we would be seeing it backwards if that's the way we're looking at it, because for God to name your son was a great honor. It signified that your son was going to belong to the Lord in a very special way and have a very special job or duty. So there is a lot of grace here, and that's what The name John signifies because it literally means God is gracious. The angel goes on to specify the role that this son John would fulfill, verses 14 through 17. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now the angel here quotes the prophet Malachi, 
which is something that Zacharias, being trained in the scriptures, would have picked up on immediately. Malachi was the last prophetic word from God to Israel before 400 years of silence. So Malachi had been ringing in Israel's ears for 400 years. And when we look at Malachi as a whole, it consists of rebuke and promise. Rebuke and promise. Rebuke to Israel for spiritual sullenness in which she complained that God had let her down and it was pointless to serve him. That's the spirit of the people in Malachi. This spiritual sullenness manifested itself in a number of ways, but particularly in the faithlessness of the husbands of Israel, both the spiritual husbands of the nations, that would be the priests, the pastors, and the husbands of families, the husbands of wives and fathers of children. As these husbands, in their sullenness, drew distant from the Heavenly Father, two things happened. Number one, they grew less and less thankful to the Father, which meant that they offered less and less thanks to God, and specifically through the thank offering, which is what the tithe was. Number two, they grew less and less like the Heavenly Father. And that showed up in a lack of heart for their wives, which resulted in things like common men commonly divorcing their wives without any sort of biblical grounds, just doing it because. And also a lack of heart for their children, which resulted in not bringing them up in the faith. And therefore, you had a breakdown of generational faith and covenant succession. That's what the rebuke was for. The promises of Malachi concerned how the Lord was going to finally cure Israel's chronic unbelief and unfaithfulness. The Lord, whom Israel professed to seek and delight in, is going to accomplish this. Number one, by suddenly coming to his temple through one called the messenger of the covenant. The Lord himself is going to suddenly come to his temple in the person of one called the messenger of the covenant. Malachi 3 verse 1. Now this is talking about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as the New Testament teaches us, he is Emmanuel. God with us. That's Matthew. He is the God of Israel made flesh. He is the one who in pre-incarnate form appeared to Abraham in the pillar of fire. John chapter 8, 56 through 58. He is the one who cut the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, also John chapter 8. He is the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He is the one who brought Israel out of Egypt and led her in the wilderness in the pillar of fire, giving Israel manna from heaven and water from the rock, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. He is the one who spoke to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, 
who made the covenant with Israel and gave her the law. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 and 26. Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. But he's going to surprise Israel because along with blessing, he is also going to bring judgment. In other words, he is going to sort out Israel. This is the same thing Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse when it says that he is going to separate the sheep from the goats. Now you see, that means a sorting out of the covenant people of God because sheep and goats are both clean, sacrificial animals. They represent covenant members. When God gives an animal to represent pagans, it's always some sort of a wild beast. If God is sorting out sheep from goats, he's drawing a line right down through the middle of the covenant community. He's separating those who believe and trust in God, who are walking with him, from those who are just floating along who do not really believe. And the separating line is going to be Jesus himself. As a result of the coming of the messenger of the covenant, all those and only those who have faith in Jesus the Messiah are part of the covenant people going forward. And so he's going to draw a line right down through the middle of the covenant community. The proud, he says, who do wickedly are going to be stubble. In other words, they're going to be cut down. Malachi 4 verse 1. At the same time, this messenger of the covenant will be the son, S-U-N, of righteousness, who shall arise with healing in his wings for those who fear the Lord's name. Still chapter 4 verse 1. Now, the Lord's name in the Old Testament is very closely associated with God's manifest presence. God says he's going to place his name in the temple. He says he's going to place his name upon his people. We talked about recently how uh, that saying that you shall not um, take the Lord's name in vain literally means you shall not bear or carry the Lord's name lightly. Like it's something inconsequential that doesn't matter. You are to carry the Lord's name in a way that shapes you. That shows that it is heavy, is glorious. The Hebrew word for glorious means heavy. It shapes. It makes a difference. And so that's what is being portrayed here. That those who fear the Lord's name are those who are going to honor the messenger of the covenant and the son of righteousness. So they're people like Zacharias and Elizabeth. Finally, the Lord, according to Malachi, will send Elijah the prophet as the forerunner of the Messiah. Malachi 4 verse 5. He is going to warn of the coming judgment, this sorting out of Israel, also verse 5. And he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord, Luke 1 17. He's going to do this. By turning, his lever to bring this about is by turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, Malachi 4, verse 6. So coming back to our text in Luke, the angel makes it clear that Elijah the prophet will be the son 
whom Zacharias will miraculously beget, and Elizabeth will miraculously conceive and bear. Verse 17, he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Verse 15, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he also will be a a lifetime Nazarite, not a Nazarene. A Nazarene is someone from Nazareth. A Nazarite was like a special servant of the Lord, someone who was dedicated to the Lord for a special purpose uh, for a limited period of time normally. And the rules for Nazarites, which you will find in Numbers chapter 6, verses 2 through 5, to indicate this special dedication to the Lord for a particular purpose, they were not to drink any wine or strong drink. They also were to not cut their hair. And then uh, after they had served the Lord and accomplished the particular purpose uh, which they were set apart to accomplish, then they would shave their head and the hair would be offered up to the Lord uh, in an offering. So this was normally just for a limited period of time. It was extremely rare for a Nazarite to serve for life. There's only three examples of lifetime Nazarites in the Bible. Samson, Judges chapter 13. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And John the Baptist, lifetime Nazarites. After John's death, Jesus will testify that among those born of women, those born in the normal way, there was not one who had arisen ever greater than John. We think that because John gets struck down in his early 30s, we think a tragedy, so much promise, so much that could be accomplished, so much waste, But that's not true. God accomplished through John the Baptist everything he wanted to accomplish in those 30 short years. And we're told that he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, when you read about Elijah in the Old Testament, the thing that stands out is just like he's doing a miracle every second. It's just miracles in every direction, this tremendous power of God through Elijah. And yet the New Testament tells us that John did no miracles. John 10, 41, zero. How can he be like Elijah when he doesn't do any miracles? Well, what we need to see is that all of that miracle working power that God channeled through Elijah was all channeled into the preaching of John the Baptist. So he was a preacher. As we turn to application this morning, I'd like to call your attention to a couple of observations, a couple of points. The first here is the big picture message that Luke is giving, especially to the Gentile converts who are the number one target of this gospel. Because you might wonder how this gospel starts in the temple with the burning of incense. There's all this Jewishness. Right from the beginning, we are immersed in Jewishness. Now, that would make sense maybe for a gospel like Matthew, 
is written to the, the Jewish believers. But this one is written primarily with Gentile converts. Why do Gentile converts need to get into all this Jewishness? That's the question. The modern church would not be able to provide an answer for that because it doesn't see any purpose. The modern church thinks there's only one thing that applies from the Old Testament, and that's tithing. <laughs> the rest doesn't apply. But what, Jew, what Luke is signaling to all these Gentile converts is that in Christ, they have been grafted into God's one true historic people. So that the history and heritage of believing Israel is now theirs. In Romans 11, 13 through 33, Paul makes it clear that God has only one people. Throughout history, he has only one people. It is based on faith in God's promises. He has one people, one covenant people, Old Testament and New, which Paul analogizes to a, to a cultivated olive tree. And Paul says that the Gentile believers have been cut off of the wild olive tree that they grew up on. They've been cut off of that olive tree and grafted into God's one cultivated olive tree. At the same time, Paul says that the Jews who have rejected Christ, who have refused to believe in him, have been cut out of God's cultivated olive tree. But he says that if they repent and turn to Christ in faith, they can be grafted back in to God's olive tree. Here, Paul is speaking covenantally about God's God's, covenant people. He's not talking about God's eternal purposes to save this person or that person. He's talking about being grafted in or out covenantally speaking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul says to the largely Gentile Corinthian church that the Israelite fathers who came out in the Exodus and passed through the sea on dry ground, who ate the manna from heaven and drank the water from the rock, he says, those are your fathers. They are your fathers. In other words, the history and heritage of believing Abraham and his believing descendants, that's your history. Elizabeth. Uh, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is your father in the faith. Sarah is your mother in the faith. Zacharias is your uncle. Elizabeth is your aunt. All those Old Testament believers, they're your aunts and uncles in the Lord. That is to be your shaping history and heritage at this point. This is why Luke takes all these Gentile converts and just plunges them in to all the Jewishness that he does in Luke chapter 1. They're in the temple with the law and the offering of incense, the people praying outside and the priesthood, all of these things. Malachi, the promise of the Messiah, all of this Jewishness, he just throws them in head first and says, start swimming because this is your heritage. This is your history. The second observation I'd like to bring up is Malachi's indicators for true revival. This is something that the angel alludes to by quoting 
Malachi. Now, the angel only quotes one phrase, but something we need to learn is that whether it's an angel, an apostle, a prophet who is quoting back from the Old Testament, um, they're not proof texting. They're not just uh, taking out a word or a phrase by itself, extracting it from its uh, context and just using it in some new way. When they quote a phrase, they're calling to your attention the entire context in which that phrase appears. And they're, they're expecting that you will understand what that context is. If you don't know it already, that you will turn back and read it and find out. And so he's talking about true revival and reformation coming through John the Baptist and then through Jesus. And think about all the different indicators, signs or that would accompany any true revival and reformation of God's people, where God is pouring out His Spirit. There's all kinds of indicators that would go along with that, any true revival. The striking thing is that out of all the things that Malachi could list to indicate true revival and reformation, he gives one. The hearts of the fathers will be turned to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now, what this is tapping into is this fact, men. When God turns our faces up to him, really and truly, the very next place our faces are going to turn is down to our children. If our faces and our hearts have not been turned down to our children, there's only one reason because our faces and our hearts haven't really been turned all the way up to the Lord. If our hearts have been turned to our children, it will have an impact. For God makes little children such that their glory is their father's. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6. This is really, really strong in little children. It can dissipate over time, grow up. But what this means for us fathers is this. Do not waste that. God gives you these little children so that you are their glory. Do not waste it. Turn your hearts, turn your face up to the Lord. And then turn your hearts and your face down to your children. Be their glory. Bring them up in the faith. Turn your hearts wholly to the Lord and then down to your children because this is the one indicator of true revival and reformation that Malachi gives us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.